Welcome back to the fifth episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex. Today, we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including a mysterious pneumonia strain emerging in Argentina, as well as Google working with the Israeli government on a new AI-based surveillance system, and many more. And of course, we will end with the Daily Delight a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into the stories. I won't bury the lead here. This mysterious pneumonia case in Argentina, it's a big deal. So we'll just start with that. From Forbes, mysterious pneumonia outbreak in Argentina has resulted in three deaths. WHO monitoring. It's one thing to be described as mysterious. It's something totally different to be described as having a, quote, mysterious pneumonia. Tucumán, Argentina, is experiencing an outbreak of what can be considered right now a mysterious pneumonia. It's mysterious because the cause of the 10 reported pneumonia cases so far remains unknown. You can add the word, quote, deadly to the words, quote, mysterious pneumonia, too, because this outbreak has already resulted in three deaths. Not surprisingly, this has gotten the attention of the Pan-American Health Organization, which is the regional office for the Americas for the WHO. The PAHO and WHO is monitoring this outbreak to get a better handle on who, what, when, where, and why. And this is going on in Argentina. Now, the word mysterious pneumonia, or pneumonia of unknown cause, aren't sweet nothings that you whisper into someone's ear after watching the rom-com movie, I Want You Back. As I reported for Forbes back in January 2020, these were words used to describe what is being seen in Wuhan, China, not too long before something called the COVID-19 pandemic emerged. Before you start diagramming out your next toilet paper run on the whiteboard, though, keep in mind that, quote, mysterious pneumonia doesn't automatically mean pandemic. It doesn't automatically mean epidemic. It doesn't even necessarily mean that whatever has been causing these pneumonia cases will spread further. Nevertheless, any outbreak of mysterious pneumonia cases does merit immediate attention. And, of course, I'm not trying to rile anybody up. I'm not trying to fearmonger. But I saw this story come across yesterday. I'm recording this on Sunday. I saw it come across on Saturday. And I thought it was worth mentioning. With everything that's happened over the last few years, I think also with the talk from uh, environmentalists over the past 10 years that we may be entering a new age of disease and epidemics, pandemics, I think it warrants at least bringing up. It should at least be talked about and you should be aware of it. Back to the article. Not a lot is known about the 10 cases that have been reported so far. Otherwise, people would have been calling it something like, oh, that pneumonia or, quote, pneumonia of, you know darn well that that's the cause, end quote. As the September 2 PAHO announcement described, quote, preliminary testing has proven negative for most common viral, bacterial, and fungal agents. Samples have now been sent for further analysis, end quote. This does leave open the possibility that more advanced testing at the National Administration of Laboratories and Health Institutes, which goes by its acronym ANLIS, based on its Spanish name, in Argentina, may result reveal a clear pathogen. One possibility is the Legionella bacteria, which can cause pneumonia in Legionellus. Initial testing of samples did not find such bacteria, but Legionella pneumonia sometimes can be a bit of a where's Waldo upon initial testing. Now, unlike something specific like coffee maker fell off a horse on my head, Pneumonia is a very broad term. Lots of different things can cause pneumonia. The National Laboratory of Medicine's Medline Plus defines pneumonia as, quote, an infection in one or both of the lungs, end quote. 
So being told that you have pneumonia can be like being told that your food has been on the bathroom floor. It's clearly not a good thing, but how bad it is can vary substantially. This mysterious pneumonia has been leaving most people affected with bilateral pneumonia, meaning that it has involved both lungs. Naturally, having both lungs affected tends to be worse than having just one lung affected. Rarely should you say, quote, I really want more of my body to be infected, end quote, unless you're talking about beaver fever. This mysterious pneumonia has already proven that it can be a killer as well. PAHO first heard of this outbreak on August 30th when the Ministry of Health of Argentina told them about six cases of bilateral pneumonia, five in healthcare workers and one in a patient who is hospitalized with in intensive care at the private clinic in San Miguel de Comán in northwestern Argentina. They had started having symptoms such as fever, muscle aches, ad- abdominal pains, shortness of breath in August 18 to the August 22nd time frame, having ended up being hospitalized with two eventually dying. Then, on September 1st, the Ministry of Public Health of Tucumán reported three more healthcare workers suffering from similar symptoms that started in August 2020. Sorry, August 20th to the 21st state range, and similar pneumonias. Of these three, another person ended up dying. Then on Friday, there was a report of yet another case, bringing the total reported cases to 10. Of note, those affected by the outbreak have, for the most part, had some type of pre-existing medical condition before developing symptoms. Again, it's way too early to start using the P word. There's no indication to pan. <laughs> the word he uses here is panicdemic. Trying to be a little bit funny. It's not even clear how this pneumonia may be spreading. Although bilateral pneumonia suggests that something is being inhaled, so far, for now, take a deep breath. As long as you're not close to someone who has such a pneumonia, and keep your eyes on what's happening with this outbreak. So, as they said, just keep an eye out. Make sure that you're paying attention. And they mentioned that it affects people that have pre-existing conditions. So if you have the ability to, or you're not in a health kick right now, you're not in a healthy place, you're not exercising regularly, I would suggest you go out and just throw maybe a run, a walk, maybe a little bit of a stair clip, uh, stair climber into your routine. Just something to make the blood flow. Don't be as sedentary. Not only will it possibly lower the likelihood that you'll die or be harmed by such a pneumonia, even any pneumonia for that matter, but also... It has a a lot of beneficial effects when it comes to release of serotonin and dopamine, and I just suggest it overall as a lifestyle. But you don't have to listen to me on that one. I'm not a medical doctor. All right, let's go. Let's stay in the international scene. We'll talk about Saudi Central Bakes hires crypto chief to boost digital ambitions. Saudi Arabia's banking regulator recently appointed... Mosan Al-Khazari to lead its virtual assets in central bank digital currency program in a sign of the Gulf state's potential crypto ambitions. Saudi Arabia has until now taken a more cautious approach on virtual assets, with officials raising concerns about their speculative nature. Yet, the emergence of the neighboring United Arab Emirates as a global crypto hub has created some urgency in Riyadh to draft more formal rules for the asset class, people familiar with the matter said. Al-Zahari, a former managing director at Consultancy Aksher, reports to Zayed Al-Yusef, the central bank's deputy governor for development and technology, the people said, asking not to be identified because the matter is private. They're part of a team in Riyadh that is engaging in some of the world's biggest crypto firms on future regulation, they said. Representatives for 
SAMA did not respond for, to requests for comment. Saudi Arabia has been pushing firms to increase their presence in Riyadh as part of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's plan to turn the capital city into a global hub that's po- posed uh, to directly challenge the Gulf's business hub in Dubai. The kingdom is the largest economy in the Middle East with a relatively affluent population, making it a key market for any firm operating in the region. Some of the industry's biggest players, including Beyonce Holdings, had staffed up their Saudi teams, identifying the kingdom as a large, untapped market if the current restrictions got loosened. In 2018, Riyadh banned banks from processing transactions involving cryptocurrencies, though workarounds did exist to trade. In recent months, local financial firms reiterated that restrictions in correspondence with customers and people familiar with the matter said. In the meantime, the Saudi government has been collaborating for several years with the UAE on a potential joint digital currency. So it seems that with pressure from the United Arab Emirates and seeing the potential upside of the investment that can happen, they're, they're changing their stance a little bit. And it's not surprising. I mean, what was it, maybe six months ago, we saw, I believe it was Ecuador, uh, but it was a Central American state that decided to make cryptocurrency, I believe, I can't remember off the top of my head which one it was, so I'm not going to quote that because I don't want to be too ignorant on that one, Um, made it part of their fundamental currency. They made it part of their payment system that you could pay your taxes, uh, you could exchange goods through cryptocurrency. So we're seeing this slow adoption Uh, it's hopefully going to help boost the market and bring it out of this bear cycle that it's in right now because it has been down for a while. Uh, The threat of a recession in the U.S. as well as the high inflation and the high correlation with tech stocks has really dragged crypto down. So if more countries start adopting it officially and easing regulations and make it easier for these businesses that facilitate trading crypto if it makes it e- countries make it easier for them to come in and establish a new customer base we could see a, a large rally or at least if not in the short term we could see a long-term gain in crypto so for those of us that are excited about crypto and the decentralization that it provides and see it as the future this is a, a really exciting story All right, so we did a little bit of international. Let's come back. Mm, Actually, let's go with expert warns Putin's economy may go on for decades. Uh, Sorry, economic war may go on for decades. But Defense Secretary Ben Wallace issues a stinging rebuke to the Russian president and insists the West won't be bullied into abandoning its values from the Daily Mail. Defense Secretary Ben Wallace delivered a stinging rebuke to Vladimir Putin last night as experts warned that Russian leaders' damaging economic war on the West could last a decade. Crippling prices for families and firms will spiral further this winter after Putin warned on Friday that Russia would cut off Europe's main gas pipeline indefinitely. He is suspected of holding Europe to ransom over its support for Ukraine, leading to predictions that average annual British energy bills could hit 8,000 pounds. Goodness. MPs, energy experts, and the former head of the army joined Mr. Wallace last night in criticizing the Russian president's tactics and calling for Britain to drill more gas and build more wind farms to avoid being held over a barrel. Mr. Wallace told the Mail on Sunday, quote, this is just another effort by Russia to bully the West into abandoning our values. It won't work, but what it will do is convince all of us that the best thing is for our futures to invest in alternative sources and leave Russia at the mercy of China, end quote. 
energy markets were closed when Russia's state energy firm Gazprom announced on Friday that its Nord Stream 1 pipeline to Germany will stay closed indefinitely. Tony Jordan of the energy consultancy Axelon said gas prices would go completely north, end quote, when markets reopen tomorrow. Putin's restriction on gas supplies to Europe is a key reason why annual energy bills for the average British family are rising to nearly 3,500 pounds this winter. Mr. Jordan said, quote, not seeing the Nord Stream 1 pipeline in use for a long time or ever is the worst fear of Europe. The impact will have an impact on price cap next year. We could see 8,000 pound a year for typical bills. That will happen if we get no good news. (sighs) This is scary, the grip that Putin has over Europe. And I always find it interesting when we look back three years ago when Trump blocked the Nord Stream 1 pipeline and everybody was criticizing him for it. Then again, he couldn't have known the political implications. He couldn't have known that Russia wanted to invade Ukraine and that they could have a stranglehold over Europe. But Biden made this opportunity possible when he came into office and he approved Nord Stream 1. This allowed Russia to mainline their gas into Europe, and it also made it easier for the Europeans to become dependent on their gas. I'm I think it's very interesting when we look back at the factors that led to the current situation. You can't just say, oh, well, if they weren't in this war in Ukraine, it wouldn't be a problem. Oh, if Biden hadn't just uh, uh, not approved the Nord Stream 1. Oh, if Trump had just done this. There's a lot of pointing fingers, even in this article. And they're trying to just point at Russia and Putin's current policy as the problem, which is true. He is cutting off the production or at least the transportation of that gas to Europe. But there are a lot of other geopolitical and global dynamic questions and points here that have allowed this to become possible for Putin to have such a stranglehold. So you always got to keep that in mind. You got to have a broad perspective and you got to do a little bit more analysis. Daily Mail is trying to make this all about Russia being evil. They're trying to make them the enemy, which is okay and understandable during wartime. I get where they're coming from. I understand the situation they're in. These are going to be, this is going to be a terrible winter for Europe. It's going to be extremely expensive because they're really heavily rely, uh, they heavily rely on renewable energies. And during the winter, in a cold climate, it is harder to get power from solar. They still have wind, but as mentioned later in this article, Britain doesn't have the infrastructure yet to be fully reliant on wind. And they've also been scaling back their uh, fracking production. So just keep in mind, whenever you read something like this, don't just think about the, the modern implications. Oh, this is what Putin's doing now. You also have to look back and say what has allowed us to get to the point where Putin can maneuver in a way that is so detrimental to the rest of Europe and he can kind of leverage his oil uh, that he's sending into Europe to get them to try to move on their position when it comes to Ukraine. All right, back to the article. Lord Danton, former head of the army, said Russia had embarked on the next stage of its invasion of Ukraine and was now waging an economic war to distract from its forces' failures. End quote. The peer added, Quote, he's losing the war on the ground, so he's redoubling efforts to win the war against Europe on an economic energy basis. Trying to persuade European countries, it's not in their interest to go on supporting Ukraine. End quote. Former Tory leader Sir Ian Duncan Smith said Putin's latest move proved he was a, quote, tyrannical psychopath, adding, quote, this is all he's got. He's desperate now. He thinks he will start to break the alliance. It will cause a big crisis. The key thing is I'm astonished that the UK is sitting on an island of gas and oil, and we have cut right back. Successive governments have failed to recognize that gas is going to be needed in the future. They've never reversed the terrible moratorium on fracking on shale gas, we should have mines pumping shale gas right now, end quote. 
The mail on Sunday understands a report due to land on the incoming PM's desk on Wednesday will set out how the UK must boost its energy options or face repeats of the current energy crisis. Mike Tolan, acting chief executive of Offshore Energies UK, the trade body behind the report, said Russia's decision to shut down its main gas pipeline to Europe was an act of, quote, economic war, adding, quote, the flows of gas from Russia were so big that their availability controls prices across Western Europe, end quote. I think it's a little dangerous that the rhetoric here is economic war. If they wanted to say they're retaliating on the economic front, I could understand that. Economic war, it sounds like some countries are gearing up and preparing, or at least they're using rhetoric that's going to prepare the population to actually get involved in a physical war. Do I think that the EU and NATO has the backbone to do that? Not necessarily, but I think it's very scary that some politicians are using this kind of rhetoric. Uh, He continued, Russia can manipulate our energy prices just by turning gas flows up and down. But it's not just gas supplies. About 40% of our electricity is generated by gas-fired power stations. So he's effectively driving up our energy bills, too. Putin has control of consumer energy bills and is using that power to wage an economic war on us. His aim is to break our and Europe's resolve over Ukraine, even at the expense of a global recession. We cannot let that continue, end quote. And that last part actually gives a good insight which is his aim is to break our and Europe's resolve over Ukraine. So in hindsight, maybe that's exactly why he's using such strong rhetoric. He's trying to galvanize the public. He's trying to make people see this war, if they don't already, as more of a us versus them mentality and that we need to be strong in order to help Ukraine. Maybe that's why he's using such strong rhetoric to help inform or sorry help ensure that people are willing to put up with these higher gas prices these higher electricity prices so that they be they associate that with helping ukraine if they can just deal with it for another year and then build up their infrastructure then maybe they can have uh, an impact and still help ukraine and not give up the the fight against russia basically so maybe that's why he's using such strong language there Back to the article. He said, failing to secure the UK's energy independence now would allow Putin to hold UK and Europe to ransom for the next decade. Boris Johnson revealed last week that offshore wind was nine times cheaper than gas. Mr. Tholen agreed that wind and solar power were key to Britain's energy future needs, but warned, quote, that scale up will take time. So we need to maintain oil and gas production. The North Steel... North Sea still has an equivalent of 15 billion barrels of oil waiting to be extracted, enough to support the UK into the 2040s, end quote. So just a little insight as to what's happening in Europe right now, just keeping our fingers on the pulse of the Biden, sorry, of the Putin war in Ukraine. Then we have a more local story here. Trump suggests that Mar-a-Lago documents were bound for his library, but advisors say he's rarely talked about it, from NBC News. A central question involving the records former President Donald Trump stored at his Mar-a-Lago home is why he was keeping reams of government documents and classified material. The criminal investigation now underway has elicited few answers so far. A lawyer for Trump quote, offered no explanation as to why the boxes of government records, end quote, were being kept at the former president's estate, the Department of Justice wrote in a court filing last week. But Trump himself evoked something that advisors say rarely comes up, his library. At the tail end of an August 2022, August 22nd statement, he suggested the records seized from Mar-a-Lago were bound for inclusion in a future, quote, Donald J. Trump presidential library and museum, end quote. The Justice Department's more detailed inventory of the documents 
unsealed on Friday, showed that Trump had held on to more than 10,000 government records, apart from those with classified markings. That he was keeping any at all confounds former National Archives and Records Administration officials who said that the material belongs to the U.S. government, no matter what Trump believed, and should have been turned over the moment he left office. For Trump world, a library has been little more than an afterthought. Six past and present advisors say, as an ex-president bent on being a future president, Trump hasn't wanted to leave an impression that his focus has shifted to his legacy. Erecting a library at this point would be the political equivalent of building a mausoleum, a sign that his career in elective politics was dead. Some close to him said, Advisors describe discussions about a Trump presidential library over the years as off and on. One ex-advisor recalled looking at Florida property maps during meetings in the small White House dining room near the Oval Office. A longtime Trump advisor said that Trump's allies were, quote, scouting locations in the Palm Beach area home near to Mar-a-Lago. A joke among those involved in the planning was that they would put the library in Greenland, the island that Trump entertained buying midway through his term, one person close to him said. Another person close to Trump, who spoke briefly to him about the library earlier this year, said, quote, He didn't seem terribly interested. He wasn't like, I gotta get my library going. He's more interested in being president again, end quote. Sorry, that was not a good Trump. I gotta get my library going. Was that good? Did everybody hear what I was doing there? <laughs> I'm not a very good Trump, so take it as you will. One Trump confidant who, as was the case with others, spoke on condition of anonymity, of course. They're always anonymous. They, they never give names, which I understand. The Trump is a person that always comes after those that speak out against him or speak against his narrative. So I get it, but of course they never give names. It's always, oh, we have an anonymous source added, quote, presidential libraries are for ex-presidents. He's an ex-president. He's coming back, end quote. A Trump spokesperson did not respond to a request for comment about plans for a library. In a court appearance last week, Trump attorney Chris Keis said, there was nothing nefarious about a former president holding records from his tenure. Rather, he said, the mix of material found at Mar-a-Lago, quote, is what you would expect if you looked through a bunch of boxes that were moved in a hurry from a residence or an office. It contains all sorts of things, end quote. If Trump's plan was to route the records to a future library, he went about it in the wrong way, former National Archive officials say. All he needed to do is what he was supposed to have done in the first place, give every presidential record back to the U.S. government upon leaving office, as the Presidential Records Act of 1978 requires. Once his library was up and running, then he could go to the National Archives and ask for the loan of documents he wanted to exhibit, as past presidents have done. Former President Barack Obama's Presidential Library, for example, expects to display his speeches and gifts he received over his two terms, all loaned by the National Archives. So, it's a very interesting, I don't want to call it a bluff, because I think at this point, Trump is saying anything he can to try to get out of it. I don't even really think that they can indict him over this. I am not a lawyer. But at the end of the day, if they're going to come after him for having classified materials and being negligent with it, I can understand that. He didn't return them to the National Archives like he should. I think there's an argument there. But when it comes to the breach of classified materials, he is the president. He has the right and the ability to declassify any piece of material. All he would have to do, in theory, is say, nope, this is, this is declassified. Nope, no more. Well, I don't want it to be classified. This is declassified now. 
So if they're coming after him for having classified documents, I think that argument doesn't stand. If they're coming after him for being negligent with records from the United States, yes, I think there could be something there that they could go after him for. But Trump is not a malicious actor, as you've probably seen in the news or read in different articles. He's a malicious actor trying to give over state secrets to other countries. This man wants to run for president again. Why would he make any attempt to give over national secrets that would screw over his opportunity to run again in 2024 and possibly win? I know that he can be blunt and irrational at some points, but I do not believe that he is that daft. He ran this country for four years with the help of lots of advisors. Don't get me wrong. And we saw a very prospering economy. We saw one of the quickest responses when it came to the creation of new vaccines uh, under Project Warp Speed. And we also saw the establishment of connections with North Korea, a historic peace deal in the Middle East. So he does have some character flaws and he can be, let's just say unaware of the results of his words and actions, but he is not an idiot outright. He did not take these documents so that he could hand them over to other countries. Is he wrong to not return them to the National Archive? Sure. But does he deserve to be taken to court over this? I don't see it. Maybe something will come out in the next few weeks, maybe some really damning evidence that we have not seen yet. But at the end of the day, he seems to be a sentimental man who just wanted to keep some of his records from his time in office. And yes, I'm aware he did wrong. He should have given them back to the National Archives and then requested them later. I'm not disagreeing with that. But come on, it's Trump. You think he didn't just take it and say, oh, I want it. It's mine now. All right, back to the article. Robert Clark, a former National Archives official at the Franklin D. Roosevelt Library at Hyde Park, New York, said every president was entitled to, quote, build a library, quote, but there is a process. He can't just store the stuff in his garage until the library gets built. That's not how it works, Clark said. One of Trump's worries was that the library would end up showing material that painted him in an unflattering light, said a former senior White House official. He wanted some control over what the library could contain, the source added. Modern presidential libraries have two main components, a trove of presidential records overseen by the National Archives and a museum open to the public. Ex-presidents aren't supposed to have control of the records the library collects. Museums are a different case. Privately funded, they often involve, <laughs> involve shrines to the ex-president. One former Trump representative recalled speaking to Madame Toussaint's museum who do thought about donating a wax figure to Trump's future library. Another idea that Trump advisors had considered is seeing if they could acquire and display Air Force One once the aircraft was replaced by the new model later in the decade, one of the people's close to him said. Quote, I am tempted to observe that given Trump's limited interest in much else than himself, I'm not, <laughs> I am not sure what a Trump library would contain, said Tom Rath, a former senior advisor of five Republican presidential campaigns. Quote, you can only have so many copies of the art of the deal, end quote. That was, that was a funny comment. I can't disagree. I mean, it's interesting that apparently there was some serious thought put in here because if they're talking about displaying Air Force One, I, I mean, they could have been throwing it around when they were uh, just sitting by the water cooler coming up with ideas. But that, that would be, it'd be pretty interesting to have that displayed at a uh, presidential museum. Uh, Trump wouldn't be unique in wanting to control his image. Quote, one of the great knocks on the presidential library system has been that it is, in fact, very difficult to get critical materials into the museums, end quote, said Paul Musgrave, a political science professor at the University of Massachusetts who worked on Richard Nixon's presidential library. What makes Trump, what makes Trump an outlier is that most of his procedures in the modern era, willingly parted with their records, sorry, predecessors. 
willingly parted with their records, even when they had a choice to withhold them in their entirety. The Records Act shifted ownership and control of papers from an ex-president to the U.S. government, beginning with Ronald Reagan's inauguration in 1981. Yet, Franklin D. Roosevelt had voluntarily turned over his records to the National Archives, as did his successor Harry Truman and Dwight Eisenhower. When he resigned, Nixon wanted to destroy the secret tape recordings that had he'd had uh, made in his office, but Congress passed a law in 1974 that kept them in the government's possession. Nixon showed, quote, he wasn't interested in following precedent, Clark said, quote, and we're in one of those crossroad moments now, end quote. There's no guarantee that Trump could raise the gargantuan sums needed to build a library in any case. The Obama Presidential Center in Chicago is expected to clock in at more than $830 million, and Obama began fundraising before he left office. Raising funds for a library is especially difficult for ex-presidents, who have little to offer prospective donors. Out of power, they can't reward donors with ambassadorships, the state dinner invitations, which were often enticements to give money. Can we just take a step back? They're openly talking about the four favor system here. Oh, well, if you give money, oh, if you come give this speech at my school, I'll give you this benefit, I'll give you that benefit. Oh, if you help fund my library, I'll make you an ambassador in the future. This favor system that we've been operating on, even since the 1800s, even the 1700s, when we first founded the country, I mean, it's been here forever. It's so corrupt. It's such a... It's extremely frustrating that that's how politics works. I understand. I'm not, uh, I'm not naive. I'm not idealistic. It just always has frustrated me that that's how politicians, and even the media is openly calling it out now. They're, this is how politicians view it, and people that donate to them view it. What can I get out of you? Not, oh, what can you do for this country? What can your policies do that will help me? But no, no, no. What can you uh, you do for me once you're in office? Not just policies, not just the way you decide to govern, but what can you do specifically for me? Oh, an ambassadorship? Great. You can have my money now. It's extremely sad how the political system in America has been working. And it's not just America, to be clear. It's worked like that in other democratic countries as well as authoritarian countries. And that's the reality. Money talks. But it's just sad, in my opinion. During Trump's tenure, advisors mused on occasion about whether the price tag had risen so, risen so high that Obama's might be the last library ever built. But one person close to Trump suggested that he could reduce the cost if he were to forge a partnership with the university. If Trump follows through at some point and raises the money, the end product would inevitably, inevitably be a celebration of his record. Two impeachments <laughs> notwithstanding. Self-veneration isn't the worries of some historians, though. If records in Trump's care were to go missing or get thrown out, that material is potentially lost to history. The National Archives was plainly worried about the condition in which Trump kept documents. In the 15 boxes that Trump's handed over in January, activists found a lot of classified records, jumbled with newspapers, photos, and correspondence. The redacted FBI affidavit used to search Trump's Mar-a-Lago home showed FBI agents who seized records from the property last month found classified material in a desk drawer along with Trump's passports. At issue is whether the United States will risk leaving omissions in historical record that warp the public's understanding of Trump's presidency. Quote, President Trump's decision to withhold or take material with him struck directly at the public's ability to know the truth about his administration, end quote, said Tim Nathley, Nathley, head of the undergraduate public policy program at NYU Wagner and the former director of the Nixon Presidential Library. Quote, our republic depends on transparency, he added. Quote, it's not perfect by any stretch, but... It's a goal we have to try to achieve. I definitely agree with the sentiment that we we need to be as transparent or at least try to be as transparent 
as possible. Uh, it's it's a hard thing to do nowadays. I mean, we have the internet, which basically keeps a record of everything. So that keeps some people liable. It, it makes sure that if they said something in the past, they have to stick to it or explain the reasoning why they've changed. But when it comes to not having presidential documents that could leave a gap in the understanding of what was happening in the White House or even just what was happening in general or the thought process of the president at the time. I do think it's important, and I do agree that these documents, whether classified or not, they do hold some importance, and they probably should have been given over to the National Archive. But also, at the same time, if you had asked me a year ago if Trump would steal some stuff, sorry, would take some things out of the White House that he thought were sentimental like his letters from Kim Jong-un, I believe, is something that's floating around right now. I would have said that was definitely something Trump would do. So it doesn't surprise me at all. All right. So our last serious story before the Daily Delight. Google's Project Nimbus is the future of evil. Google does a lot of stupid things. All giant corporations are the same in that regard. But it takes special effort to do something truly terrible. That's where Google's Project Nimbus comes in on the spectrum. Project Nimbus is a joint effort from Google, Amazon, and the Israeli government that provides futuristic surveillance capabilities through the use of advanced machine learning models. Like it or not, that's part of the future uh, of state security and not any more terrible than many other similar projects. Many of us even use similar tech in and around our homes. Where things get dark and ugly is what Google says about Project Nimbus's capabilities using the company's technology. Nimbus training documents emphasize, quote, the faces, facial landmarks, emotions detection capabilities of Google's Cloud Vision API. And in one Nimbus training webinar, webinar a Google engineer confirmed for an Israeli customer that it would be possible to, quote, process data through Nimbus in order to determine if someone is lying, end quote. Yes, the company that gave us the awesomely bad YouTube algorithms now wants to sell algorithms to determine if someone is lying to the police. Let that sink in. This is a science that Microsoft had abandoned because of its inherent problems. Unfortunately, Google disagrees so much that it reiterates, uh, retaliates against people in the company who speak out against it. I'm not going to wade too deeply into the politics at play here, but the entire project was designed so that the Israeli government could hide what it is doing, according to Jackson Polson, former head of security for Google Enterprise. One of the main goals of Project Nimbus is, quote, preventing the German government from requesting data relating to the Israeli Defense Forces for the International Criminal Court, end quote. According to The Intercept, Israel is said to be committing crimes against humanity, uh, humanity against Palestines, according to some people's interpretation of the laws. Really, though, it doesn't matter how you feel about the conflict between Israel and Palestine. There's no good reason to provide this sort of technology to any government at any scale, Doing so makes Google evil. I think the author's language here is very strong. Evil, maybe misguided or maybe driven by profits. Evil is a strong word. I most definitely agree that this is very scary. The fact that you could have a AI system that is determining, not verifying, not identifying, I say determining here, because there's no 100% process to determine if someone is lying. They cannot know for certain. I think it's extremely scary. Uh, imagine having an AI system tell a police officer that you're lying to them when you get pulled over at a, let's say, a routine traffic stop. And then they use that as justification to fine you or even put you in jail if for some reason it's a criminal offense or you've had multiple DUIs before or something to that effect. And they're going solely off the determination of an AI system. That is extremely scary in my opinion. 
Let's get back to the article. Nimbus's supposed capabilities are scary, even if Google's Cloud Vision API was 100% correct, 100% of the time. Imagine police body cameras that use AI to help decide whether or not to charge and arrest you. Everything becomes terrifying when you consider how often machine learning vision systems get things wrong, though. This isn't just a Google problem. All one needs to do is look at content moderation on YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter. 90% of the initial work is done by computers using moderation algorithms that make wrong decisions far too frequently. Project Nimbus would do more than just delete your snarky comment, though. It would cost you your life. No company has any business providing this sort of AI until the technology has matured to a state where it is never wrong, and that will never happen. So I love this little layer of insulation that he's putting in here. It would be okay if it was matured and it was never wrong. And then he says, well, that will never happen. No, it still wouldn't be correct whatsoever. You can't have an AI system sit there and judge people and determine whether they're right or wrong. That is a, or they're lying to a police officer. Because even if they are, and they use that as a definitive statement in court, imagine where that goes. Oh, we know this system's never wrong, so why would we have to put you in front of a jury of your peers? We, we know you're lying. We know that you're innocent or guilty based on the results of this AI program because it's not wrong. It can't be. That's extremely scary. That's a precedent that I would never once set. The whole point is proven you're innocent until proven guilty by a jury of your peers or a judge. And that taking out that human element and replacing it with an AI system, that just leads to an authoritarian state. So I don't think there's any case where this AI system will be matured enough to ever be implemented. I think it is extremely scary. But let's get back to the article. I've gone a little too far off here. Look, I'm all for finding the bad guys and doing something about them, just like everyone else is. I understand that law enforcement, whether a local police department or the IDF, is a necessary evil. Using AI to do so is an unnecessary evil. I'm not saying Google should stick to writing software which powers the phones you love and not try to branch out. I'm just saying there is a right and wrong way. Google chose the wrong way here, and now it's stuck because the terms of agreement do not allow Google to stop participating. You should form your own opinions and never listen to someone on the internet who has a soapbox, but you should do, be well informed when a company who was founded on the principle of, quote, don't be evil, turns full circle and becomes the evil it warned us about. Great point. I think that ending is very, very accurate. Just keep your eye out. We've seen China implement security systems that constantly monitor their citizens. They have their social credit scores in some cities. And developing these sort of programs in Western democracies like Israel, what's the next step? Do we start implementing one in the U.S. or in Canada? You just need to keep your eye on the ball and look out for these important, important issues when you see them. All right. Enough with the doom and gloom. Let's get to our daily delight. This one comes out of San Diego. Lewis, Lucas the Penguin shows off his new prosthetic shoes at San Diego Zoo. Look out, San Diego. A penguin has found his waddle, and it's adorable. Lucas, a four-year-old African penguin who lives at the San Diego Zoo, was recently fitted for prosthetics to help him walk properly. If you're surprised to hear that African penguins, yes, it's true, there are just as adorable as the ones from Antarctica. This particular penguin was born with a condition called bumblefoot, which causes ulcers to form on his feet, oh, poor guy, and can result in sepsis and death. Who knew a condition that sounded so cool, cute could be so cruel? Bumblefoot is a chronic condition that can cause penguins to not be able to walk properly. The condition doesn't just affect penguins, but it does seem to be more prevalent in penguins that live in captivity than those that live in the wild. Thankfully for Lucas, he's got some new shoes to show his little penguins friend. 
The permanently tuxedoed bird was gifted a pair of custom orthopedic shoes made out of neoprene and rubber, according to the zoo. Lucas's special shoes were made by Therapaw, an organization that designs custom orthotics and products for animals with special needs. San Diego Zoo vet Dr. Beth Beckstein explained in a press conference, the boots, quote, the boots are cushioned and Velcroed in place so they will help Lucas to fully participate in the colony and showcase behaviors that are more typical for a penguin, such as climbing the rocks, swimming, nesting, and finding a suitable mate, end quote. Lucas started having problems with his feet after a spinal infection left him unable to stand properly, which put pressure on his ankles and legs and caused sores to form. The little guy got the full spectrum of treatments, including acupuncture, before the zoo turned to prosthetics. Amazingly, immediately after putting on his new penguin shoes, he had improved posture. Debbie Deaton, senior wildlife care specialist at San Diego Zoo, said in a press release, quote, We were presently su- pr- pleasantly surprised at the immediate change in Lucas after we fitted him with the new boots. Seeing him move about now gives us hope that he will be okay going forward and able to live a full life. The zoo, according to its press release, participates in the Associations of Zoo and Aquarium Species Survival Plan Program. African penguins are currently endangered. The penguins made the endangered species list for a variety of reasons, including climate change and overfishing. But San Diego Zoo is doing its part for penguins like Lucas to allow them to not only survive, but to thrive. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. If you want to read any of the articles that I read here today, there will be a link in the description right below that subscribe and like button. All right. Only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.